uh, tonight we want to address the subject, uh, guard your heart against idolatry. And when we think of idolatry, we tend to think, we tend to think, well, I'm not sure that applies to me because, I mean, that was Old Testament stuff and New Testament stuff. And they had the different idols and they had the different gods. And I mean, if you go to Japan or you go to China, you'll see the big massive Buddhas and the temples. And uh, you go to India, you'll see the Hindu temples and idols and all this. That, that, yeah, yeah, I don't bow down before images. So, you know, I'm not sure that's something I really deal with. We all deal with idolatry. Uh, there are different kinds of idols. Um, success can be an idol. Status can be an idol. Significance can be an idol. Um, position can be an idol. A title can be an idol. Um, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of idols. We're all susceptible to idolatry, all of us. And if you think you're not susceptible, you're susceptible. First uh, Corinthians 10 verse 12 says, let him who stands take heed lest he fall. We have all fallen for idolatry, and it continues to be an issue that requires us to guard our hearts. It's not going and bowing down before some Buddha. It tends to be a lot more subtle than that, and we don't even realize we're being sucked into it. Let's go to Exodus 20 as we begin tonight. Exodus 20 contains the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, verse 1, Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. He's addressing idolatry. Anything can become an idol. Anything that comes in your life before God is an idol. Kids can become an idol. Grandkids can become an idol. Retirement can become an idol. Financial security can become an idol. Things that are legitimate can easily get out of perspective and become the most important things in our lives. And whenever that happens, that sin because God says, first commandment out of the box, you shall have no other gods before me. Verse 4, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. When you've got a father who is in sin and pursuing sin and um, modeling that to his children, we tend to emulate what we see. That's just how it works. And when unbelief goes on in a family for generations and generations and generations, um, a study was done one time of a family of Jonathan Edwards, uh, great 
preacher in early America. Uh, Encyclopedia Britannica said of Jonathan Edwards, uh, the most brilliant mind ever produced in America. Absolutely committed to the Lord Jesus Christ and to the Scriptures. Someone did a study, and I'm doing this off the top of my head. This is not in my notes. But years ago, someone compared the family of Jonathan Edwards with the family of Max Jukes, J-U-K-E-S. Max Jukes was a hardened, lifelong criminal. He was a reprobate. He married a like-minded woman. Um, someone studied their descendants. And again, I'm pulling this off the top of my head. Uh, through the generations, there were rapists, there were murderers, there were thieves. There were, the years spent in prison, generation after generation after generation, was overwhelming. Now, let me say a word if your last name is Jukes. <laughs> Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and we're all sinners. Some of you guys are the first in your family to follow Jesus Christ for generations. You may still be the only one in your family to follow Jesus Christ. But you see, you look back over generations, those Ancestry.com stuff, I got an email today that I got a fourth cousin somewhere who's trying to contact me. I'm trying to find out his financial status before I, I get involved with him. You know. uh, it's kind of fascinating to look into that stuff and to go back over the past generations. You look at your past generations, uh, that's just a chain. It's a chain. Genealogies are chains of relationships. Some families are not followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. But God in His grace, it, it, where I'm going with this is you're not chained to your, the past genealogy. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There is no other name given to men under heaven by which we may be saved but by the name of Jesus. And when you call on Jesus and you trust him for your salvation and to forgive you of your sin, and to give you a new heart and a new life, what's happened is a new link has just been put in a generational chain. You're a new man in Christ. And now generations to follow will be blessed. But even after we come to know the Lord, even after we come to know the Lord, we've got to guard our hearts against idolatry because it's so subtle. Uh, idolatry is sin, flat-out sin. Garrett Kell, I came across an article. He, he's a pastor, and he did an article. It was titled, If They Fell, So Can You looking at different people in the Old Testament. Excellent article. I want to give you his four points about sin because they apply to what we're going to look at tonight. And 
it applies to guarding your heart. Number one, sin feeds on power. We're going to look at two very powerful men tonight. We're going to look at Solomon, and we're going to look at Jeroboam, both kings in the Old Testament. Kel says, we tend to think that the more powerful we become, the better we will battle sin. But the exact opposite is true. The more power, influence, or prestige we possess, the more temptable we are. Because the strength of sin feeds on our sense of strength. That's why we are warned that pride goes before destruction. When you're strong, we tend to get proud. This is why God takes his men and makes us weak. Because when we're weak, we know that we need him. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Second point. Sin is smarter than you. We're going to look at Solomon. He's got a comment on Solomon. Solomon's reign began with love for God and his gift of unparalleled understanding. He wrote thousands of Proverbs and authored inspired words of Scripture. But his heart gave way to forbidden alliances, lovers, and idols. Solomon had matchless wisdom, yet he was outsmarted by sin's schemes. The tempter sowed seeds of compromise that eventually sprouted and choked his discernment. He counseled others to lean not on their own understanding, yet he did not take his own counsel. Three, sin wants you to trust your own wisdom. We're going to see this in a minute. Solomon knew what God said about multiplying wives and horses and riches, yet he thought he was wise enough to handle it. This is part of sin's scheme. The tempter assures you that you were wise enough to see when you were in trouble. He wants you to think that you're safe even while indulging in sinful exploration. And that's what went on in Solomon's life as he recorded it in Ecclesiastes 1 and 2. He absolutely pursued pleasure and thought he could handle it. Uh, you'll be assured that you can keep things under control after all God is with you. But you see, you're deceiving yourself. Number four, sin wants you to underestimate small compromises. The tempter has a crafty plan to patiently have you grow content with small compromises. It's just one look. Uh, a little won't hurt. It's not as bad as what they are doing. If Satan cannot tempt you into great sin, he will settle for a small one because he knows that small sins pave the way to greater ones. There's a lot of wisdom there. Tonight we're going to look at Solomon and we're going to look at Jeroboam. Sadly, they both fell into the sin of idolatry. We've got men in here. That means you're a leader. God has called men to lead in the family, and God has called men to lead in the church. It's in the book. 
If you're a husband, you're a leader. If you're a father, you're a leader. If you're a grandfather, you're a leader. If you're a young man who knows Jesus Christ, you're a leader. And you're not to act as other young men because you know Christ. You're to treat, you, you as a young man are, are to treat the younger women with all purity, Paul said. You don't take them out, try to hook up and just have sex with them, and then see you later. You don't use them and abuse them and throw them away. Why? Because you're a young man who's following Jesus Christ. And in your relationships, you lead in purity. You got a different Lord. You have a different God. You're a different man than you used to be. You're a leader. Bill Lawrence has made a great statement. Bill says, the test of a leader's heart is when God says no. I think he's right. I quoted from this book a month or two ago. Bill, longtime professor at Dallas Seminary, um, little book called The Principle of Accept, E-X-C-E-P-T. Um, he says this, the test of a leader's heart most often comes when that leader receives a no from God and must submit to the authority over him because most leaders don't like being under authority. And that's true. We like being leaders, but because you're a leader, you like to do it your way. You think you know best. We like to have control. It's just human nature. So leaders have a hard time submitting to authority. It's a great point. So the real test is when God gives you a no and you want a yes. David wanted to build the temple for God. It was his heart's desire. God said, no. Uh, you, you've been a man of war, you've been a man of bloodshed. That's for your son to do later. I mean, he really wanted to do it. We're, we're aware of David's flaws and his great sin. You're aware of yours. We all have them. To his credit, when God told him no about building the temple, you know what he did? He submitted. He obeyed. And then he spent the rest of his days getting things ready for the son who would build the temple. You see? But he took the no. wasn't what he wanted to hear, but he took it. To say yes when God says no, the Lord says, reveals a leader's resolve to obey God and demonstrates his devotion to the Lord. Very few leaders have David's devoted heart. That's why very few leaders become men and women after God's own heart. David was a man after God's own heart. See, it's always the heart that is the heart of the matter. Let's turn to 1 Kings 11. And what we're going to do tonight, we're going to see, we're going to first look at Solomon, and then we're going to look at this guy Jeroboam. Now, last week, we looked at Rehoboam. Rehoboam was Solomon's son. When Solomon died, Rehoboam took the throne. Well, who's this Jeroboam guy? 
Jeroboam is a guy who used to work for Solomon. He was a young, gifted, talented guy that was uh, a rising star, caught Solomon's eye, and uh, Solomon promoted him, and he worked for Solomon until they had a little bit of a rift. And then he shows up again later, and he became a king eventually. Okay. So we want to begin with 1 Kings tonight. We want to begin with uh, chapter 11, and actually... From 1 Kings 1 up through 10, uh, the hand of God is all over Solomon. His father has died, David. Now he's taken the throne. Um, God said, ask whatever you will. He asked God for wisdom, and God gave it to him, discernment, understanding. Uh, he had a gift like no one else on the face of the earth. Because he asked for that, God gave him a bunch of other things, including riches, uh, God appeared to him twice. He saw the glory of God. He had a great start. Uh, God prospered his kingdom. The queen of Sheba came to visit and was astonished by what she saw. She said, the half was not told to me. This is unbelievable. She couldn't even take it in. 2 Kings 10, verse 23, so Solomon became greater than all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom. Now, that's quite a statement. Greatest king on the earth in riches and in wisdom. All the earth was seeking the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. Now, go down to 11.1. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh. Here come the idols. Here comes the compromise. Here comes the trouble. Here comes the um, self-deceit. This is tragic. This is an absolutely tragic story in 11. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh. Okay, let's stop there. So, he built the temple for the Lord. Then he built a house for himself. Uh, there is a little bit of a tip-off that things were a little askew when it took him seven years to build the house of the Lord, and I think it took him 13 years to build his own house. You see what I'm saying? Just, I mean, it's just a little, little odor there. Something's a little bit off. Then he builds, uh, he marries Pharaoh's daughter, and he builds her a place. Watch this. He loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, uh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, now watch this, you shall not, this is a no from God. This is a big no. You shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. Solomon held fast to these in love. He thought he could handle it without getting burned. He thought he was smarter than sin. 
three. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. This guy was exhausted. That's insane. Did this have to do with sex? Sure. Yeah, especially the concubines. This guy didn't need to be addicted to porn. They were, they were living and right in front of him. Every color, every race, every, I mean, it was a buffet every night. 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. Watch this. And his wives turned his heart away. Go back to Deuteronomy 17 real fast. 17, 15. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your own countrymen. You shall set his king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. So the guy had to have a birth certificate. He did. No, he did. That's in the text, is it not? I'm just saying. It's in the text. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself. Why not? What's wrong with that? Horses pull chariots. Chariots were the latest technological military invention of that day. God did, want, God did not want his people trusting in horses or chariots. He wanted them trusting in him. Nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again go back to Egypt. He shall not multiply wives for himself. The king should have one wife. This guy had 700 wives, 300 concubines. Now his dad, David, he broke this too. David had at least eight wives, maybe more. Uh, 18. It shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priest. He had to write his own copy of the Word of God in his own handwriting. It shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life. That was his assignment. He was to read the Word of God, which he had written in his own hand all the days of his life, to keep him on track. Okay. And there were some no's that he was real familiar with as king. Solomon violated the nose. He wouldn't obey. Let's go back to 1 Kings 13. By the way, as we've gone through this study and we've looked at different individuals in the Scriptures who either guarded their hearts or did not, we've uh, said that each man has an epitaph Something will be written on your gravestone when you die at the end of your life. The epitaph for Solomon is in 1 Kings 11, verse 6. Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord fully as David his father had done. That's a tragic epitaph. Uh, go up to verse 4. 
of 11. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. So Solomon went after, and he's going to list some of these gods, and I'm not going to go into detail about these gods. I don't have time. So he went after Ashereth, the goddess of the Sidonians. Uh, that would involve a lot of sexual perversion. And after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonite, that would involve a child sacrifice. Uh, Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord fully as David, as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable idol of Moab. W once again, Moabite religions, little girls weren't safe because the priests could come and pull them out of their homes as little tiny girls, and they were subject to all kinds of sexual uh, deviancy and perversion, and uh, this was part of their uh, religious uh, experience, uh, like being in a cult like the children of God back in the 70s and 80s, just abhorrent stuff done to little girls and little boys. Uh, but you see, Solomon built the temple, and now he's building around Jerusalem for these demonic gods. Uh, he built this detestable idol of Moab on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem, and Moloch, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. Uh, Moloch was the god... He was the only king to build something for Moloch. You see it throughout the Old Testament. But Moloch, uh, Manasseh did this. Moloch was, they would build this large god and his hollowed out back and his hands were like this. He was like a Buddha. And they would have these crazy demonic worship times and absolutely demonic stuff going on. And the drums would be beaten in. They worked themselves in a rage. And the priest would build a fire in the back of that God two or three days before, and it would be white hot, and you would take your, your firstborn, and you would walk up and throw it into the hands of that God. Uh, they've had discoveries at uh, Carthage of uh, Moloch worshipers, and they have the remains of uh, four-year-olds down to little infants that were sacrificed. Solomon was in on that. Uh, eight, thus also he did for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. He built all kinds of temples around Jerusalem. Now, the Lord was angry. All right, so verses 1 through 8, what you've got is Solomon's idolatry. Now, beginning with verse 9, you've got God's judgment. When we get into idolatry, God judges. When, um, when we get into sin as believers in Jesus Christ, and, you know, the Spirit of God will convict us, and we know something we've done is not right. It's, it's not right. The Holy Spirit lives within us. And you keep doing it, and you keep doing it. You're going to get... My dad used to judge me. You ever, your dad ever do that? My dad didn't have metal on his belt, but he'd pull it off. And my dad loved me, and my dad would die for me. My dad never abused me, but I'll tell you what. He'd whip my butt because he loved me, and he had to teach me to obey because I was young, and I was stupid, and I was strong-willed. 
And he knew one day I'd be a man, and I'd have a wife, and I'd have kids, and I had to learn responsibility, and if I didn't fear him, I'd never fear God. And the fear of the Lord is beginning of wisdom, and the fear of the Lord is beginning of knowledge. He wanted me to grow in stature and wisdom. He loved me. Hebrews 12 says, if you have never been disciplined by God, you're not a child of God. Because every child that God receives, he disciplines for their good. If you want to keep playing around with stuff, he's going to take you to the woodshed. Not to ruin you, to rescue you. You see? Okay. You guys still with me? Okay. 11. So the Lord said to Solomon, because you've done this and have not kept my covenant, my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David, because he had made a covenant with David. But I will tear it out of the hand of your son. That would be Rehoboam that we looked at last week. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son. That would be Benjamin. Rehoboam was of the tribe of Judah, and then he was going to give him Benjamin. I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant, David, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. Okay, now here comes the discipline. Uh, Beginning with verse 14 uh, down to uh, the 26, really through the rest of the chapter, um, you see God's discipline on Solomon. He's going to raise up three men that are going to be, um, they're they're going to drive him nuts. Uh, Solomon, for years and years and years, had peace on all sides. No war, no skirmishes, no nothing. Nobody had missed with him. But now God's going to raise up three men uh, to afflict him and to bother him and to do guerrilla warfare against him. The first guy is in 14. Uh, the Lord raised up an adversary to Solomon, Hadad. He was an Edomite. I don't have time to read this, but there was a history between the the nation of Judah and the Edomites. This guy is raised in Egypt, and he comes back as a male uh, leader, and he starts bothering um, Solomon on the southern border, okay? Now, then you get to Twenty-three. Here's the second adversary. God raised up another adversary to him, Rezon. Rezon was another guy. There was a history, and he starts messing around and doing guerrilla warfare on the north on the northern side. So suddenly he's got stuff on the south. He's got stuff on the north. Uh, he's been used to peace on all sides. No longer. It's sort of like the uh, IRA against the Brits kind of thing. All right. It's no fun to be in that stuff. Then you go to 26. Then Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite, of Zerida, Solomon's servant, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow, watch this, also rebelled against the king. Now this was the reason he rebelled against the king. Solomon built the millow and closed up the breach of the city of his father David. You say, what the heck is that about? Uh, To us, it's no big deal. It was a big deal to him because if you look at verse 28, Jeroboam was a valiant warrior, and when Solomon saw that the young man was industrious, he appointed him 
over all the forced labor of the house of Joseph. Uh, Jeroboam was one of those guys, in high school, he was voted most likely to succeed. He had a lot of gifts. He had charisma. He was a born leader. Uh, he was an organizer. Uh, he was a persuader. He could come out with a plan. He could implement a plan. The guy was really something, and he stood out. He just stood out. He was an up-and-comer. He was the number one draft choice. So Solomon sees him, puts him in charge over all the forced labor. Now, this Milo thing, what was that about? We're not given a lot of detail, except the Milo was part of the fortification around the defense, around uh, Jerusalem, and it was either a tower or a reinforcement of the wall. Something came up as Jeroboam was over that where he got crossways with Solomon. We don't know the details. It doesn't seem like a big deal to us. It was a big deal to them, and it caused Jeroboam to actually rebel. I mean, this went deep for some reason. Okay. 29. See, now we're meeting Jeroboam here. And we looked at this last week. It came about that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem, and the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, found him on the road. Ahijah had clothed himself with a new cloak, and both of them were alone in the field. And then what happens is, Ahijah takes the new coat, tears it into 12 pieces, and he gives Jeroboam 10, 31. He said to Jeroboam, take for yourself 10 pieces, for thus says the Lord God of Israel, behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and give you 10 tribes. Uh, but he will have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel. Now, why is this being taken away? The kingdom is being taken away from Solomon. Why? Verse 33, because they have forsaken me and have worshipped the idols. He lists all the idols. This is idolatry. And I'm going to rip the kingdom out from under him because he has not obeyed the covenant. He's transgressed. 35, I'll take the kingdom from his son's hand and give it to you, even ten tribes. Now look at 37. Here's what, here's what God says through this prophet to Jeroboam. I will take you, and you shall reign over whatever you desire, and you shall be king over Israel. In the next chapter, the, it's going to split. Rehoboam is going to become king. The ten tribes of the north are going to come and say, listen, your dad was pretty hard on us. You know, we're asking you to cut us, give us a break. He said, come back to me in three days. He consulted with the elders, with the wise men. They said, yeah, this would be smart. You go ahead and give them favor, and they'll serve you all the days of your life. Then he went to the young guys, the guys he went to college with, his frat buddies. He'd drink with over spring break, and they said, no, you've got to be a hard guy. You've got to show them you're tough. Don't do that. So he says, hey, listen, my, my, my little finger is bigger than my dad's sexual organ. That's what he said to him. And that was it. And they rebelled. For 80 years, his father and grandfather had held the nation together, the 12 tribes, and in 72 hours, he split it. He was a fool. Okay. But go back to Jeroboam, 37. I'll take you, and you shall reign over what you desire, and you shall be king over Israel. The ten tribes of the north were Israel. Jerusalem, where Rehoboam was, was of Judah and then Benjamin. All right? 
So the ten tribes of the north, Jeroboam, they're yours. Now watch this. Then it will be that if you listen to all that I command you and walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight by observing my statutes and my commandments as my servant David did, then I will be with you and build you an enduring house as I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. Notice the word if, and then notice the word then. In other words, if you do what I say in my word to you, if you obey me, I'll pour a blessing on you that you can't even imagine. If you obey me, then I'll bless you. And I'll give you an enduring kingdom like I did to David. Now, that's quite a promise. What an opportunity. I will afflict the, uh, 39, thus I'll afflict the descendants of David for this, but not always, because in the future the Davidic kingdom will be restored. That's another deal. Solomon, therefore, uh, somehow Solomon finds out, and therefore he tries to put uh, Jeroboam to death. Jeroboam arose, fled to Egypt, to Shishak, king of Egypt, and he was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. Whew. To be continued next week on Masterpiece Theater. This is a lot of stuff, but it's kind of captivating, isn't it? Wouldn't it be great if Hollywood made a movie from the Scriptures and actually stuck to it? I mean, what the Scripture actually teaches? Whenever they do a movie, it's, they always screwing around with it. It's more captivating just to see what God's up to and what he does. Anyway. So now we get into Rehoboam in 12, which we looked at last week. This whole Rehoboam thing. He talks to the old guys. He talks to the young guys. He's going to be a hard guy. He splits the nation. Okay. You need a breath? All right. Go down to 12, uh, 25. Now, before we read this about Jeroboam, let me uh, make a couple statements. So much of sin and idolatry is about power. Uh, Lord Acton, who was one of the 12 apostles, a little humor to see if you were awake. He said, all power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. That's why in our nation the founders set it up with checks and balances. And aren't you glad that's alive and well in our country? What does absolute power do? Corrupts absolutely, and you're on your way to tyranny. Solomon wanted to keep power, so he made alliances with foreign kings. Power drove him to idolatry. He married all those foreign women, not just because he liked the chicks. But you see, Israel is a small nation. That whole Middle East crisis, you look at a map, you, you can barely find Israel. What are there, six million people in Israel? It's about the size of Dallas-Fort Worth. They're surrounded by hundreds of millions of nations that hate them. 
they're always trying to do peace talks. I think it was back in the 90s, was the Prime Minister of Israel, Ehud Barak? Last name was Barak, I know that. He's working with old Yasser Arafat. And he offers to give Arafat 95% of the land. Now, if you go take a course on negotiation, <laughs> I think they'll probably tell you that if you can get 95% of what you're after, that's a deal you better take. Arafat turned it down. Because you see, what he wanted and what he declared publicly and it's true to this day, he didn't want 95%. He didn't want 100%. He wanted to drive them into the sea and exterminate them. This is why Solomon in his day would marry um, this guy's over here, runs this country, he'd marry his daughter. Because if he marries his daughter and he's got kids with her, you know, the guy's coming for Christmas, so he's not going to invade, and, you know, it was an alliance. It was a protection. And he kept making all these alliances and kept making all these deals. It was to keep him in power. In order to keep power, he made ungodly alliances instead of trusting in God. Okay. Now we're going to meet Jeroboam. Jeroboam's a little different. He, he loved power, but Jeroboam wanted to keep power, but was fearful of losing power. So, he invents his own religion. The fear of losing power drove him to idolatry. Now, I'm going to show you this in just a minute, but first let me show you the epitaph of Jeroboam in 1 Kings 14, verse 16. Here's Jeroboam's epitaph. He will give up Israel, and then here's the epitaph. On account of the sins of Jeroboam, which he committed, and with which he made Israel to sin. Now, if there's any doubt that that is his epitaph, Dale Ralph Davis, a great Old Testament scholar and pastor, says that that epitaph is repeated time and time again throughout First and Second Kings. It's, I'll just, I'll just read them off. I mean, you don't need to write this down. There's no discussion that this is the epitaph of Jeroboam. It's, that epitaph is found in 1416 in First Kings, also in 1526, and then again in verse 30, 34, chapter 16, verse 19, 26, 2252, then 2 Kings 10, 31, 13, 6, verse 11, 14, 24, 15, 18, 24, 28, 17, 21, 223. It's repeated because there's going to become a list of the kings that came after um, Jeroboam. There would be 18 of them in the northern kingdom. Every one of them followed Jeroboam and did evil and caused the people to do evil, they followed in the footsteps of Jeroboam. He not only sinned, he caused the people to sin for 180 years, and then they were taken into captivity by Assyria, and they disappeared. You ever heard of the ten lost tribes of Israel? That's where this comes from. That's his legacy. 
He was so afraid of losing power, he was going to invent his own religion. Okay. Now, remember what God promised him. I'll give you an enduring kingdom like David. Okay. Let's go back to... Uh, let's go back to 1225. Okay. Now the nation's split. Ten tribes in the north. Two in the south. 25 of 12 of 1 Kings. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim. That was the capital and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. Now watch this. 26. Jeroboam said in his heart, in his mind, he's talking to himself. Now the kingdom will return to the house of David. What does that mean? Well, he's been given ten tribes. He's the king. If he does what God says, it'll be an enduring kingdom. He won't lose it. But he says in his heart, now the kingdom will return to the house of David. He's afraid he's going to lose it, and they're going to go down to the south. Because three times a year, the men and their families were to go to Jerusalem as God instructed, and they were to worship, and they were to give thanks, and there were to be sacrifices, because the temple was in Jerusalem. And he thinks to himself, he said to himself, wait a minute, if they go down to Jerusalem, they're going to return, and they're not coming back, and I'm going to lose my power. He was fearful and he was anxious. Psalm 94, somewhere in there says, when my anxious thoughts multiply within me, thy consolations delight my soul. You ever get an anxious thought? Yeah. You ever get just one anxious thought? No. Because anxious thoughts breed like rabbits. One anxious thought leads to another anxious thought. You'll think all of a sudden, oh my gosh, what if that happens? Oh my gosh, and if that happens, then that might happen, and then, you know, and then that could happen, and then that happens, and that happens, and all of a sudden your blood pressure, and you got blood coming out of your ears, and I mean, you're just absolutely freaked out, and there's no truth to it. Anxious thoughts multiply. What calms you down? Thy consolations calm me down. I got a God who runs my life. I've got a God who's made promises to me. I had a guy come up to me earlier today, and he said, I'm a financial advisor, and I got people, I'm looking over their money, and he said, you know, I'm looking at all this going on in Syria and this, and there could be bomb, and there could be this, and there, there's Putin, and there's Russia, and all. He said, he said, are you, are you, he said, what do you think about this? And I said, I don't think about it much at all. He said, really? And I said, no, I mean, I'm aware of it. He, he said, I mean, uh, he, he said, you know, this, this whole thing could blow. I said, yeah, and one day it will blow. I mean, that's in Scripture. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff about what's going to happen in the last days. And Russia's going to get involved with Iran. That's never happened before in history. Oh, that's going on right now. And all this stuff. And it's going to blow and there's going to be a war. He said, well, I'm trying to anticipate. I said, well, that's, I mean, that's great. You're using wisdom and you're using your head. He said, so you don't feel any? I said, no. I don't. Probably because I don't have any money. <laughs> but... No, I'm not worried at all. I sleep like a baby at night. You know, I change my diaper a couple times and go back to sleep. And he was asking, I said, and he said, well, I'm trying to be, and I said, look, you're trying to be responsible and you're, you're trying to be a good steward. Good for you. I said, you know what you need? You just need to ask God. 
You want to make, you want to serve your people. You're, you got a, you know, a stewardship. Yeah. James 1, if any of you lack wisdom, we ask God who gives to all men generously. He won't have that. Ask God what you should do. George Mueller said, God is my banker. Ask him. He knows. He's already written it down. He knows the timing. If you ask him, he'll give it to you. He'll show you what move to make. You're good, man. You're good. And so are you, and so am I. Is stuff going to happen? Yeah. But he's in absolute charge, and he's made promises to me and my family, and we're good. Jesus is working his timetable. I mean, he really is. Okay. How did I get into that? I don't know, but it's, it's true. Okay. Oh, here we go. Here we go. He's talking to himself. Now the kingdom will return to the house of David. If this people go up and offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord of Jerusalem, oh, then the heart of this people will return to their Lord, even to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and, and, and return to Rehoboam, king of the... And, and, and God said, I'll give you a kingdom if you do what I say, and it'll endure forever, and this sucker thinks they're going to go down, he's going to lose power, and they're going to kill him. Where did that come from? That's nonsense. Sorry, but that's nonsense. Sometimes you got to grab yourself. Say, this is stupid. You got to see. You know, sometimes in the movies, someone will be panicky in a war situation and he's kind of losing his mind. It's better to come up and slap him in the face and the guy will go, thanks, thanks. I, I needed that. Sometimes you got to slap yourself in the face. Say, so what is this fear? God has made promises to me. How many times has he taken care of me in the past? Has he got me through tough stuff? Lord, I know you're there. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about around you. I am your God. I will help you. I will comfort you. I will hope you with my, uphold with you with my mighty right hand. That's either 41. That's 41 of Isaiah. But this guy didn't do that. And so as a result of this fear to hold on to power, what does he do? He goes nuts. So the, and he becomes an idolater. So the king consulted and made two golden calves. Whoa, that was brilliant. And he said to them, it's too much. He says to the people, it's too much for you to go to Jerusalem. Behold your gods, O Israel, that brought you up from the land of Egypt. Well, if you go back to Exodus 32, Moses up on the mountain, and the people out of control, and Aaron says, well, well we're going to build a golden calf. Huh. I've got to read this to you from Ralph Dale Davis. This guy is excellent. Uh, he said in 28, it's too inconvenient if you go to Jerusalem. Behold your gods, O Israel, that brought you up from the land of Egypt. He set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. This guy had multi-site campuses. He had one in the north, in Dan. You live in, up there? You don't need to go all the way down there. You can just go to the north campus. And some people were in the south, and it wasn't that far to Jerusalem. Oh, we'll build one in the south. So you got two golden calves, whatever's convenient for you. Yeah. 
Ralph Dale Davis says this. Note particularly Jer- Jeroboam's call to worship. Uh, look, O oh God, uh, you, uh, look, your gods, O oh Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. He's talking about these two calves. It's important to remember that Jeroboam's liturgical cry is a quotation. It regurgitates, it regurgitates the cry of the apostate is Israelites in post-Exodus time who embraced the worship of the bull calf they had pressured Aaron to make when they worshiped the golden calf under Aaron, okay? Herein is the subtlety of it all. Jeroboam may be suggesting that this bull-assisted worship is not so wild, not so off the wall as Israel might think. Time was, he could suggest, he could suggest when the stream of faith in Israel was broader and more inclusive when matters on faith and faithfulness were not construed so narrowly. Sound familiar? Then he's got a great story. When apostasy stinks, whether apostasy stinks depends on how it is pitched. In the 1930s, a horse liniment named Absorbing was plummeting in sales. An advertising man named O.B. Winters had the liniment lab tested. He found that it would work on ringworm of the foot. With a stroke of genius, however, Winters conjured up a whole new name for such ringworm. He called it athlete's foot. There is such a difference in the way the malady is marketed. Who would want to admit having ringworm even if there was a cure? But athlete's foot? One would almost be disappointed if one didn't suffer from it periodically. (laughs) It carries such positive associations. That was tragically Jeroboam's genius. Linking his new cult with the bull worship at Mount Sinai seems to have cast a mantle of legitimacy over his innovation. It was not apostasy, but diversity. It was not novel, but historical. It had roots. It had precedents. So much depends on how it's pitched. False religions major in subtlety. They'll use the terms, but they change the meanings. So Jeroboam inaugurated his deviant religious cult. And what he does, and this is in the rest of the text, he comes up with an absolute counter-religious system to the one invoked by the Lord God Almighty. Um, Verse 30, now this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan. There was only one way to have sins forgiven. Blood had to be spilled by the high priest in the temple in Jerusalem. That temple was built on Mount Moriah. Jesus was crucified on Mount Moriah. Abraham sacrificed his son on Mount Moriah. And as he was bringing it down, the knife, God said, stop. And he had told his son, his son said, Daddy, we got everything, but we don't have a lamb. His daddy said, God will provide a lamb. And Jesus was the lamb. In the Old Testament, they looked ahead to Jesus. We look back to Jesus. When he instituted this new deal, it was apostasy. 
because what was being done in the temple in Jerusalem was a foreshadowing of what Jesus would do on the cross. The book of Hebrews tells us. He made houses on high places and made priests from among all the people who were not the sons of Levi. You couldn't be a priest if you weren't of the sons of Levi. Oh, but he's got a new religion. Uh, he instituted a feast on the eighth month of the 15th day. The Feast of Tabernacles was on the 15th, month, uh, the 15th day of the seventh month. He's just mirroring and counterfeiting. And, and he went up to the altar. Thus he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves which he had made. A king can't become a priest. He did. Thirty-three. Then he went up to the altar which he had made in Bethel on the fifteenth day in the eighth month, even the month with he, which he had devised in his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the sons of Israel and went up to the altar to burn incense. That's his idolatry. And then in 13, you've got his judgment. Two things are going to happen. Uh, a prophet is going to show up, and the prophet's, I'm just going to summarize this. The prophet's going to show up. And he says, there's going to be a king coming down the road named Josiah. And Josiah came hundreds of years later. And what he's going to do is, huh, well, he just says, uh, Behold, the son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. Um, and then he spoke to the altar and he said, this is, this is going to be, God's going to destroy this. And what happened was that Jeroboam was so upset, verse 4, when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried out against the altar in Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar saying, seize him. But his hand which he stretched out against him dried up so that he could not draw it back to himself. His hand instantaneously withered when he reached out for the prophet. That's the judgment of God. This guy's crazy. But God got his attention. His hand just withered. And the altar, the altar was split apart, and its ashes were poured out according to the sign which the hand of God was given by the word of the Lord. Now look at this, 6. The king said to the man of God, please entreat the Lord your God. Notice he doesn't say, please entreat my God. Please entreat the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. So the man of God entreated the Lord and the king's hand was restored to him and it became as it was before and Josiah repented and turned to the Lord. No. God healed him. But it didn't change his heart. Because his heart was set against the Lord and set against maintaining power and doing evil. And he said to the man, hey, why don't you come and have dinner with me? And the guy says, no, because God told me to get out of here. And he was trying to get the guy to have dinner because that was a sign of friendship and partnership, and the guy had nothing to do with it. Later, there's another judgment in chapter 14. First it was his hand, now it's going to be his son. At the time Abijah the son of Jeroboam became at that time Abijah the son of Jeroboam became sick. 
Jeroboam said to his wife, Arise now and disguise yourself so that they will not know that you are the wife of Jeroboam and go to Shiloh. Behold, Ahijah, the prophet, that was the guy that tore the cloth and the 12 pieces. Ahijah, the prophet, um, is there who spoke concerning me that I would be king over this people. He remembered this. He remembered what God had promised him. Okay? Jeroboam's wife did so. Arose, went to Shiloh, and came to the house of Ahijah. Now, Ahijah could not see. His eyes were dim because of his age. Now the Lord had said to Ahijah, Behold, the wife of Jeroboam was coming to you to inquire concerning her son, for he is sick. Now remember, Jeroboam said, Arise and disguise yourself. Okay. That didn't work because the Lord says, Hey, she's coming. Jeroboam's wife. She's going to inquire concerning her son who's sick. You shall say thus and thus to her, for it will be when she arrives that she will pretend to be another woman. When Ahijah heard the sound of her feet coming in the doorway, he said, Come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why do you pretend to be another woman? For I am sent to you with a harsh message. And basically he said, Because of the idolatry, when you go back to the house, your son's going to die. C.H. Spurgeon, the great preacher in London, second half of the uh, 1800s, told the story of a man who was converted and started attending the Metropolitan Tabernacle and coming faithfully, and his wife was very upset, very upset, not happy about it, uh, did not like the changes she saw in him. Uh, and she decided one Sunday she was going to check this out. But she didn't want anybody to know. She didn't want her husband to know. So what she did, she dressed herself in a way that normally she wouldn't dress. She put a veil over her face so that she could be recognized. Uh, when she got in, she got in late. There was only room in the balcony. As she took a seat, Spurgeon was reading 1 Kings 14. And as she sat down, in the seat, she heard Spurgeon read verse 6, Come in, wife of Jeroboam, why do you pretend to be another woman? For I am sent to you with a harsh message. She later came to know the Lord. You know, a case could be made. Uh, here's the sadness. Jeroboam never repented. He knew the truth, but he never repented. None of this had to happen. None of this. None of this had to happen. What if he had a said to the Lord? What if he had a said to the prophet as soon as his hand was with it and his hand was healed? He said, Lord God Almighty, forgive me of my sin. What would have happened? He would have been forgiven. The Lord is full of mercy and grace. You know God would have forgiven him. But he didn't do that. What happens to us when we keep going in sin and all this? What, what, what? Repent. Turn to the Lord. There's forgiveness. doesn't matter what you've done or how long you've been in it. doesn't matter. Repent. Turn from him. Turn to Christ. Say, Lord Jesus, come into my life. And, he'll, and you'll be forgiven. This guy never did it. Now, Solomon apparently did. We don't have his repentance recorded in Scripture, but after all of this occurred with Solomon, he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, 
And the book of Ecclesiastes, he's looking back over his life, which he lived under the sun when he forgot about God, but apparently he came to his senses and turned back to the Lord. But Jeroboam never did. Solomon's problem was that he held fast to foreign women. Jeroboam held fast to apostasy. Jeroboam invented his own religion. Sam Storms has observed that in our day and age, we have mega churches with many gospels, M-I-N-I. We have churches that are very large that name the name of Christ, but they have a very small gospel. Their gospel is um, perverted. Their gospel is um, out of whack. Uh, you go and uh, you'll hear prosperity. You'll hear wealth. You'll hear that you should never be sick. You will hear, you will hear a gospel tailored for the masses. They will tell you what you want to hear but they will not declare the whole counsel of God. In essence, what's happening, because they want to grow and they want people to come and they want people to come back and they want people to give and you want to prosper. Well, if you will prosper, if you'll give in, sow seed into our ministry. They're mega churches with a mini gospel. Barely a gospel at all. This happens. There are Jeroboam's in our day. There's a teacher out there named Rob Bell. Young people know about him. Went to Wheaton, started the church in uh, Michigan, grew like crazy, did all these videos, very hip, very cool, very together, uh, very gifted. He's a Jeroboam. He's departed from the faith. All Rob Bell does is question. That's all he does. Would God really send someone to hell? Does that seem right to you? Did he really put his son on the cross and make him die? He just, he's just, but Oprah loves him. And he lives in Southern California, and he's got a big following, and he writes books that he's invented his own counterfeit Christianity. It happens all the time. There's been, uh, over the last 40 years, there's probably been no other church with the influence of Willow Creek in the suburbs of Chicago. Bill Hybels founded that. He was a youth pastor. Uh, they met in a theater. They had to clean out my sister-in-law went to that church when she was at Wheaton. And it grew. And uh, impacted a lot of people. Bill Hybels resigned last night. He was going to retire later, months down the road. Uh, sadly, accusations were made by former staff members, women, against him. Uh, went to the board, they explored it. 
no, nothing, uh, no sexual relationship, but apparently women, f- unwise meetings, unwise, he denied it. Former friends and associates stood by the women. It, it's gotten messy. And he resigned uh, last night. Um, Willow Creek's interesting. They asked me, the men's minister at Willow Creek in the mid-90s called me and asked me to come up and do a men's conference. And I said, are you sure you want to be calling me? He said, I'm absolutely sure. The reason I ask him that is that Willow Creek has, they're, they're pretty hip and they're pretty cool and they know how to market and they've reached a lot of people. But what Willow Creek did from day one, they were influenced, Hybels was just a young youth pastor, he was influenced by a professor at Wheaton named Gilbert Bilizekian who is an avowed Christian feminist. I've read his stuff. In my opinion, Bilzekian has the ability to look at a text and see what isn't in it. And he's all about feminism. He started an organization devoted to Christian feminism that what the Bible says about the roles of men and women in the church and in the family is wrong. Husbands are not the head of their wives. Uh, that was He was the key guy who influenced Willow Creek at the beginning. So they had women elders, as this has been going on, and you can read about it in Christianity Today over the last few months, the elder board responded, you know, the head of the elder board is a woman. Hybels has appointed two people in a succession plan to take over when he leaves, a lead pastor and a teaching pastor. The lead pastor we call senior pastor. The lead pastor is a woman. A guy is the teaching pastor. Now, I'm going to take this on because I see it everywhere in the evangelical church. And it's wrong. And it's idolatry. And it's sin. 1 Timothy 2, here's what God says. Jesus is head of the church. Okay? 1 Timothy 2, verse 12. Paul says, who is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul wrote scripture. He wrote the words. He wrote truth given to him by Jesus. This is fully inspired by God. I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Now, just so we don't misunderstand... What he's talking about is conduct in the church in 3.14. He says, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come before long, but in case I am delayed, watch this, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, in the church. All right? I don't allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Elders exercise authority in the church. They're called the lead. 
The requirements for an elder in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, the pronouns are all male. That's been understood for 2,000 years of church history, except in the uh, Methodist Arminian tradition since the 1700s. They were the only one that had women teachers, pastors. I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Now, what you'll get from Willow Creek and from others in our community who love Christ but have punted on this issue and have women teaching in the pulpit, and you know who I'm talking about. They love the Lord, but they've invented their own deal. Why would you not do what Jesus said in his church? To disobey this is idolatry and to bow at the idol of feminism. That's what it is. That's why when the guy called me and said, I want you to come up and do a men's call, I said, you want me? He said, yeah. I said, you got this cleared with the board? He goes, yeah. I said, okay, I'll come. And then he told me, I think it was two days before the conference, once I got up there, he said, I got a call from Bill Ezekiel. And he said, what are you doing bringing him up here? I don't know how long he lasted. I just know I never got invited back because I do a men's conference, and husbands are the head of the wives as Christ is head of the church. And up there they reinterpret head to mean source, like the source, the headwaters. And they even have people on Bill Zekian's um, organization that write theological journal articles saying how source doesn't really mean head, as in authority, it means this and this. Wayne Grudem, great evangelical scholar, did a sabbatical at Oxford. Wayne looked up every usage of the word head, every usage, every usage in literature, ever. It was over 2,200 times. It took him months in the Oxford Library. 2,200 and something times, it meant authority over. Some people love feminism more than they love the Word of God. That's inventing your own religion. The, the people would say, well, well, you see, that's all cultural. The reason Paul said that's culture. Read the text. He doesn't give a cultural explanation. And you see, well, that's not real cool in our day. It's not real hip because, you know, it's, it's like you're against women. Let me tell you something. If you hold to this, people are going to write reviews on your church on Yelp and say they just are run, there's just a bunch of males running that church. I've seen it. Churches in the Bay Area, they get critiqued all the time. I hate this church. They have no women in leadership. That's because Jesus is the head of the church. We're not bowing. When all else fails, read the directions. 
oh, oh, that's all cultural. No, it was not in his culture. His reasons wasn't, wasn't from the culture. He goes back to creation. I don't allow woman to teach or exercise authority over man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. Oh, that's no big deal. Apparently to God it's a big deal. It was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. He goes back to Genesis. I read uh, a, um, a testimony by a woman who went to seminary, and the seminary never had preaching classes, but then they decided to open it to women, and she got into a preaching class, and her whole thing was, I took the preaching class, and I realized to myself, I said, I can do this, I can do this. And then she became part of a church, and her husband was on staff, and they worked things and did a study with the elders, and eventually the elders of that Bible-teaching church put her on the, in the pulpit. And they said, we've studied the Scriptures and all this. The problem is when you study the Scriptures from just what they want it to say. And by the way, when you play with the text to get women, it's okay for women to do this out of this text, you're opening yourself to homosexuality and gay marriage in the church. Because you've just opened the door. She said, I can do this. I can do this. What she should have asked, should I do it? She never asked that. And the elders of that church never asked it. We live in a culture. Listen, God put things in place in creation for a reason. There's to be benevolent male leadership in the home and in the church. We live in a day where so many young men and women are confused about gender roles. So many young men are feminized and uncertain, unsure. The last thing they need is a woman in the pulpit they need men in the pulpit who declare with balance the Word of God and will not bow to the idols of the culture. That's what they need. That's what we need. This is coming to a church near you. This church will face this one day. And if you're an elder, you're going to face it. If you're visiting from another Bible church, your church will face it. And you got to decide. You got to decide. You're going to follow the Lord or you're going to be a Jeroboam. Let's pray. So, Father, we ask for wisdom. We all make excuses for ourselves. I make excuses all the time. I ask that you'd help me to see those and not commit presumptuous sins. I know guys in this room are praying the same thing. We want your favor and we want your blessing. Why would we fight you? Why would we insist on our own way? It makes no sense. We don't know what we're doing. We make small compromises and they lead to great compromises. Thank you for saving us from our sin and from our foolishness. Help us to align ourselves with your word. Help us to keep tender hearts before you. And help us, Lord, to see the idols and to destroy them with your help.
Thank you for forgiveness in Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen.